And verse 10, we'd started out, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Or uh, if you've got a Cambridge Bible, you'll see in the margin it would say wicked spirits in heavenlies. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And then it goes on with put on the whole armor of God. We were, uh, and we would got to the words, haven't we? Um, put on the whole armor of God and we discussed putting on what it meant to put on, what it meant to have the whole armor of God and what the armor was, and what it meant to, by having the whole armor of God And then, you remember, we went on to stand against the wiles of the devil. And basically, we're called to stand against the uh, wiles of the devil. And if you're called to fight and to stand against something, and you don't know what you're standing against, you're very likely to be rapidly defeated. That's for certain. Many people do not comprehend what the wiles of the devil are. I meet a lot of people who believe that there is no devil. They'll tell you, oh, you know, that's storybook stuff. Of course, it isn't storybook stuff. He's very real, powerful, and basically he wants to be almighty. He never will be, thank God. And he has little might really now, except that which God permits him to have. And he's in the throes of venting his hatred and animosity against mankind. And that we need to appreciate. But I need to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And you remember I divided it into two. Does anyone remember what the first thing was we dealt with last time? Hmm? I can't hear. Drawing Christians into sin. That's the first while he wants to bring us, draw us into sin. And the second thing was to vex us and to trouble us. And that's the next operation uh, that I want to talk about. It's the vexing or the troubling of Christians. And we need to see that the devil's out to vex and to trouble Christians and to bring them down and to immobilize them. There's nothing worse than being immobilized in your heart. I'm sure a lot of you have found that there are certain times in your life when faith just goes out the door. You'd like to believe, you'd want to believe, but you find you can't. And you don't know why. You can't really understand why it is that faith has slipped away. But suddenly you find faith seems to have gone from the door of your heart. And you struggle to believe. I've seen people who have struggled to believe. And it's an awful sight. Uh, 
You know, they mutter the sinner's prayer, as they call it. I've heard people say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, God doesn't want to help your unbelief. He wants to get rid of it. Uh, Understand that. Uh, He's not in the business of building up a man's unbelief. He wants to destroy unbelief in the heart. And uh, many people think that that's a Christian state. Well, certainly it's a state, but not a Christian one. Uh, it's a state that people get into. I do not need to come to a place where I lose faith ever. I don't need to lose out on my experience and walk with God, providing I obey what the Scripture says. I put on the whole armor of God, and then I'm able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, one of the things that the devil's art for that is he sows a seed in your heart, a seed of unbelief. But unfortunately, the plant that grows, instead of growing there, it has a long shoot and it comes up there. And you find you can pull it off and you never get to the root of what's really wrong. See, the devil knows that if you can identify very rapidly what's wrong in your heart, you'll try and put the matter right. So the manifestations of problems in Christians' lives are never what's really at the root of the problem. I'll give you an example. I had a a woman come to see me um, some 18 months ago. And I remember that she was in total rebellion against God. Everything was anti-God, anti-authority, anti-this, anti-that. And she was very, very anti-God, you see. And I talked with her for a time. I'd been asked to speak with her. And I talked with her and I discussed things. And she began to open her heart. And she gave forth the venom of her feeling. And I told her if she didn't repent and turn to Christ, then she was going to be in serious trouble. And that the way she spoke was totally against God. And she went on and on and on. And she was bitter, so bitter. And I asked her why she was so bitter. And, you know, God had let her down. And if God was real, why didn't this happen? And if God was real, why didn't that happen? And blah, blah, blah. Off she went. And she was really full of venom. And I hadn't met her before, and I didn't know much about her. But recently I had a letter from her her father who wrote to me and said that she'd been in a mental home and now she was taking electric shock treatment, uh, and, uh, you know, but she'd become a Christian, you know, and uh, I viewed the letter, and of course she'd had ten demons cast out of her, but that hadn't made her any better, Um, and I doubt that it would, and I wrote back a letter to, to the father, and I said, well, look, first and foremost... You know, your daughter's in total rebellion against God and against authority. And I had no idea why it was. And then someone mentioned to me that what had happened, she had lived with a man for three or four years, I don't know how long, and, and then the man had gone off because to America for a new job, and the only way she could go with him was to marry him. And she didn't want to marry him, or she chose not to at the time, so the fellow left her. And then her life from that point went down and down. Vroom. Now the basic thing was she broke the principles of God back there. 
But when she came to see me, did she mention it? No. Did she bring it up? No. But her bitterness and the root of her need stemmed from there. She'd done it, really, because she couldn't face up to responsibilities, and now she's spiting herself and destroying herself and eating herself up in her bitterness. And psychiatrists are putting her on a couch and psychoanalyzing her bitterness and getting nowhere fast. Naturally, the psychologists and psychiatrists, uh, the only thing they can do is analyze a person and tell them they've got a problem which the person knew already or they wouldn't be sitting there. Um, the only thing they do, as my wife said when she trained in it, is they think up fanciful names for the, the conditions and use those to blind people with science. Basically, she's a bitter old bag. I mean, that expresses the sum total of her need. And what she needs to do is come to repentance and to realize that she violated the principles of God and she's paying the price of violating them. And be sure your sins will find you out and what a man sows or a woman sows, that also will they reap. And there's a spiritual law. And you can't just cut the spiritual law off and say, all right, Lord, I'm going to sow that way, but I don't expect to harvest. It's rather like a farmer walking out into a field one day, looking at the field and getting it plowed up by one of his men, coming the next week when it's spring, sowing all the seed, and then going away and expecting nothing to grow. That would be rather ridiculous. When he comes out, he'll find the seeds growing. It's time for a harvest. And there always is. And in our lives, our lives and our hearts are like gardens. It's no good us coming along and living and planting seed in our heart and our life and expecting at the end of six months we aren't going to get a harvest. Some way, somehow, God will bring a harvest. So something will come to fruition. And the consequences of it can often be disastrous. If you sow the wrong things, he that sows to the uh, flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the spirit will reap eternal life. Now, what are you sowing in your life? Say, well, surely it doesn't matter, but it does. Whatever you do is basically governing what's going to happen. You just can't live separate from God and say, all right, well, I believe it won't happen to me. I can just sow and God won't mind. You know, God won't notice. You can't sow emotional havoc into your life like that girl did and then not expect to reap the, the reward of it. She reaped the reward. And it's awful. You say, well, can't God just deliver her from it? Of course he can. But at a price. The price was the blood of Jesus Christ shed on Calvary's cross. But she doesn't want to pay that price of receiving salvation because her pride won't let her. So she languishes in torment. And no one can help. Now we're told to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, one of the first things a devil does to vex a Christian and to try and trouble a Christian is to try and convince a Christian that he isn't a Christian. And it comes 
and he will point out to you all your little waltz and flaws and frowns and creases and everything else about you. And he will say, look, if you were really met by God, that wouldn't be in your life. If God had really met you, this wouldn't happen. If God had really met you, that wouldn't happen. Now, I have found that everyone suffers from that. Don't they? Don't you find there's a time when your mind gets vexed and you wonder and the devil kind of says into your mind, and it is the devil, it's not your thoughts, but suddenly you begin to question your own experience. And you think, well, if I'd really met the Lord, why is this happening? Or if God had really met me, why is that? Have you never found that question crop up and you start to analyze your life and you suddenly think, well, it's one of the wiles of the enemy. First thing he did to Christ when Christ had heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he went off and was led by the spirit into the wilderness. If you're the son of God. Now that is common. He'll always attack your standing and relationship with God. And our relationship with God doesn't change because of something I do. You must understand that if I'm a son of God, I'm a son of God irrespective of what I do. And that is one of the uh, kind of shocking things, really. You know, Nathan came to King David and he told a little story. You all remember the little story. And David got furious and he said, tell me who the man is, you know, and I'll deal with him. And, and Nathan looks at him and says, thou art the man. Now, David had sinned against God. He'd robbed someone else's wife and he'd caused murder to happen. And the prophet came along and he said to David, thou art the man. Now, David didn't immediately think, I wonder if I've ever had a real experience of God. You know, I mean, how could I have done that thing if I'd had a real experience of God? Lord, you know, maybe I was deceived all the time. You don't read that in the scriptures. He didn't start thinking, well, I don't know if, if God had really met me and changed me, then how come I got into such a mess? He accepted that he was the man that had committed the sin and he repented of it. And he saw that he needed forgiveness. But he never allowed the thought to enter his heart that he hadn't got a real relationship with God. He knew he had. But one of the things the enemy does in the wiles of the devil is whenever you trip up and stub your toe, immediately the enemy puts a question there. <laughs> Are you a son of God? And do that. And the world will put a question there, won't they? Have you ever heard someone say, when you do something wrong and you, you, you make a mistake, you call yourself a Christian and you do that? Have you never heard someone say that? They say, oh, you know, you're a Christian, are you? And do that. And you look a bit shamefaced. Sure, they're right. I mean, as a Christian, you shouldn't do it. But, I mean, they're hypocrites, aren't they? They don't pretend to be Christians. They wouldn't live up to any standard, but they demand one from you. 
And so they become the devil's mouthpiece. And immediately your soul gets vexed and you go down into condemnation. And then you think, oh Lord, you know, how can I face up to people when they know I've done this or done that? Well, if you've confessed it and you've repented before Father, that's the end of it. People want to remind you of it. That's their problem, not yours. People think it's terrible. Well, they just have to put up with it. No, it doesn't matter. If I've um, turned around, you know, all Israel could have come to David and said, Ah, Nathan said you were the man, committed murder, did this, did that, did the other. Who are you to be king? Couldn't they? In fact, what God did say at that time was one of your own households going to rise up against you. And lo, Absalom did. And that's one of the things that traps our hearts. The wiles of the devil, he knows how to trap and vex our heart. And so he comes with continual accusation to our hearts. And he's forever accusing us. He's forever, as I said last time, he's got a kind of color film. And he can play back all the instances in your life when you've done something wrong. And you suddenly find you go to pray and... On goes the old reel and projector and he clips into all our yesterdays and kind of go back and you begin to pray and there you are right on the screen. He's got the very thing to depress you and make you feel terrible and you think, oh Lord, you know, how could I ever get up and preach if I'd done that? And how could I, if I'd done this, Lord, and, and everything else? I remember when I was first came into the things of God and God met me in a glorious way, I met a man called Nicky Cruz. I shall never forget spending two days with Nicky. And one of his occupations before he got saved was he'd go down to the local drugstore in New York and he'd knock off the lights that were always by the door and then he'd take a dagger out and he'd stab the nearest person to him and he'd run off down the road wiping the blood on his shirt. Now, I... Why he did it, he didn't know. But that's what he used to do as a dare with his friends. In fact, he was um, a terrible person, criminal. And God gloriously saved him and met him. And he was a gentle, meek, loving person. And I was chatting with him because at that time I just, well, I was on my way out the police. And um, I found that the nature of man is the same, whether you're for the law or against it. Before you become a Christian, basically, your nature's evil. Everyone's nature's evil. And you're driven inside, if not outside. I mean, the cloak of respectability one wears on the outside doesn't mask what's inward. And I began to share with him and talk with him and we sat up all night just chatting about past experiences and the things that are happening in our lives and there wasn't much difference between him and me except I was on one side of the law and he was on the other. Uh, I hadn't ever gone into a drugstore and stabbed someone but I had gone into a pub and beat him over the head with something. Uh, and... Um, I, I learned that there wasn't much difference, really, in essence. Now, the devil uses that. He knows what we were. 
And have you never found that you have to face up to someone and you share with them that you're a Christian and what God has done in your life? And they can immediately say, well, what about when you did so-and-so? Or what about so-and-so? How can a Christian do that? And immediately, you swallow and you think, oh, dear. And you get all uptight. Not necessarily that the thing's wrong. It might just be questionable. And then you feel a bit embarrassed and you're not sure how to face up to it and whether you should say something or whether you shouldn't say something. And so our souls begin to get vexed. And the big question comes up in my life, have I had a real experience of God? That's always the thing that begins to crop up. Because the devil wants to rob us of a belief in our true and fundamental experience of Christ. And I know that that's the while that he uses most of all to vex a Christian. Then you get the simple-minded Christian who's got converted and he gets worried about questions of doctrine he finds in the Bible about election. Um, and I'm not talking about a general one. He finds a question about election, and he thinks, now, I wonder if I'm one of the elect or not. And he begins to read his Bible a bit closer, and he thinks, well, you know, yeah, God predestinates us, and we're either predestinated or we're not predestinated. I'm not sure where I am. I wonder whether it's real or it's not real. And the argument goes on in his mind and his heart, and he just doesn't know what to think. In the end, he begins to despair. Well, The truth of it is that if you're one of the elect, you'll have had a real encounter with Christ and you'll be born again. And that's how you know you're one of the elect. But until you've been born again, you can never possibly know you're one of the elect because it's not God's time to show you that you are. And therefore, you'll come into terrible confusion if you try and work out doctrines. It doesn't matter a whistle whether you are one of the elect or you're not, until you're born again. And once you're born again, you'll know you are, because you wouldn't have been born again if you weren't, would you? But up to that point that you are born again, how do you know? Because you're not dead yet. And if you were dead, then you would know. But if you're not born again and you're still alive, it's possible you could be one of the elect, you just haven't come to the time of election. But a young Christian gets stumbled by that or by doctrines about um, holiness or by doctrines of, of um, doctrines of demons. You know, you can have doctrines of demons. Someone came to me the other day and said, well, why is it, you know, in this church we don't have casting out of devils and, and all the paraphernalia that goes with it? Um, Well, the reason is because not that I don't believe in devils, but uh, I don't believe in exhibiting them. And also, uh, we're not here as a kind of, um, well, one one of my friends down in Wales said to me that, you know, he'd got a church of 300 people. And he said uh, it took him three years to realize that he was the cheapest cabaret act in South Wales. And when he came to that conclusion, he quit his nonsense, and decided that he ought to preach the gospel. Uh, It's easy to fill a church if you want to put on a cabaret for them. 
get people to fall over and jump and, uh, and do all sorts of things. But basically, you won't bring them to Christ. But you could have a lot of excitement in the meantime, and people will come. I remember going to meetings where people would sit on the edge of their chairs, kind of looking, waiting for something to happen. Sure enough, it would happen. Well, that's fine for the flesh, but it doesn't really add anything to a man's spirit. Except a little excitement and fervor, which is probably dangerous. And um, so he quit his act and got his church down to 40 people. People who wanted to go on with God. And isn't that what we're all about? We need to realize that um, young Christians always get stumbled by the wiles of the devil coming and suggesting something better. For instance, with Jesus, he came and uh, Jesus had been led by the power of the Spirit into the wilderness, so he takes him up into a, onto a pinnacle of the temple and he says, well, cast yourself down. It's written he's given his angels charge over you lest you dash your foot against the stone. And, and, you know, just throw yourself down. You won't get hurt. And Jesus refuted it and said, you know, you're not to tempt the Lord thy God. But what it would have been would be an exhibition. I've had times where when I've gone to see people who are sick, the enemy has said to me, well, it would be a tremendous testimony if you just laid hands on them and they rose from their sick bed. Now, how do I know when it's God and when it's the devil? I've had other times when God said, pray for them. I prayed for them and God's healed them and they got out of their bed whole. Uh, but how do I know which is which? Had an interesting case once. I was invited. Uh, I probably have told you about it. I was invited by this vicar. He, he asked me to go round. There's a woman in a coma in the bed upstairs. She'd come. She was with a well-known evangelist who didn't believe in the things of the spirit. And traveling round the country was uh, setting up his campaign. And uh, you know, hundreds of people were going to get saved in a very kind of conservative manner. And this woman was his secretary, and she'd gone into this coma, and this vicar he invited me round. And I got round there, and he was a, a youngish fellow then to me. He was about 30, I suppose, 35, with glasses. And I, I went before I went, I asked the Lord, I said, Well, Lord, are you going to deliver this woman or not? And he said, Yeah. And... The Lord told me very clearly before I went that before midnight she'd be set totally free. So I knew. So I went round, and I think I got there about 8.30 or 9-ish, and sat down and had a cup of tea with the vicar and his wife, and we chatted over this, that, and the other, and everything else. And then he got round to the point, and he said, well, I suppose we'd better go upstairs, and this was about 10 past 11 at night. We'd sat talking and left the woman in a coma. I mean, she wasn't going anywhere. Um, so there's no point in rushing. And uh, we went upstairs, and there was this big old bedstead. You know, it's the type of thing you'd expect in a vicarage, brass bedstead with knobs on. And um, went in there, and there was this lassie lying unconscious in a coma. Now, when someone's in a coma... Their spirits are very much awake, even though they're not. You can talk to their spirits. You know, they can hear all right. Uh, and so um, 
I began to pray, and I shall never forget um, saying to the speaker, I said to the dear man, I said, well, would you like to pray first? And so he knelt at the end of the bed and recited some of the prayer book. Uh, and I can't remember what he prayed, probably light in our darkness, we beseech the Lord or something, I suppose. Um, I used to listen to it every Sunday, so I should know what bit it was. And he went on, and then we began to pray for the girl. And I should never forget, she began to groan. She was totally out, and she began to groan. And then uh, I looked down at the end of the bed, and this poor old vicar, there he was, peering through the bars, the end of the bedstead. He kind of got hold of them, and his knuckles had gone white on these bars that he was kind of holding on to. And his eyes were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the sweat coming off his brow wasn't through the heat of the room. Because vicarage is at cold places. At least his was. And then we prayed and I came against the thing that bound her. And all of a sudden she just sat up and she actually vomited over the bed. Horrible black sputum. Terrible. Smelt terrible. But the devil does smell awful. And came totally to her senses completely all right, prayed for her to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be filled with the Holy Ghost, and God gloriously filled her with the Holy Ghost. And that was that. And I looked at my watch, and it was two minutes to twelve. And there it was. The Lord had done it. And um, I looked down at the vicar, and he, he just didn't know what to make of all this, and thanked me very much and said, you know, he thought it was tremendous and wonderful. I got a letter from her three years later and she was healed from that day forth. She'd never had another fit, never had any problems um, and she'd been suffering from fits for nigh on ten years. And um, God totally delivered her and set her free. Now that's the power of Christ. But I have to know when it's God talking to me. I know another man Oh, his name was John, I won't tell you his second name, who, who decided that he had a healing ministry and it was his inflated ego that had got hold of him. It wasn't a word from God. And so he heard that a man down the road was dying of cancer. And so he went down, knocked on the door, and he, he said, well, I've come, God sent me to heal this person. And the chap died two days later. Uh, and that's awful. I know of another boy called Richard, and he was praying, and he was one of these, what I would call, uh, freakish people. He'd got real uh, courage and endeavor, and he decided, he, he used to run a greengrocer's shop last time I knew of him, and he decided one day he was reading his Bible, and he said, um, and, you know, the works that I do and greater than these shall you do. And then he read about raising the dead and he thought, well, that's a good idea. And he went outside and his mum said, oh, down the road, so-and-so's just died. So quick as a flash, he thought, well, the Lord's just told me that we'll do greater works than him. We'll raise the dead and uh, I better get a brother and go and raise this fellow. So he went and got on the phone to a friend and he said, come on, we're going to raise someone from the dead. And this friend of his was stupid enough to go with him. 
And so there he goes down, marching down with his Bible under his arm, knocks on the door, and he says, well, God sent me to Ray. <laughs> it's your husband. <laughs> and, you know, hallelujah, glory to God. Where is he? He said, well, he's upstairs. So this fellow marches upstairs with his friend, tells them not to come because it would affect their faith. And, you know, and he marches upstairs, throws open the door, and there's this guy lying in bed with a big blob of cotton wool in his mouth and pulls back the sheet. And at that point, his faith vanished. It was a good idea while he was reading his Bible. It was a good idea while he was a long way away. But at the point where he was confronted with a corpse, it didn't seem such a good idea, so they said a benediction and left by the back door. Now, that is presumptuous faith. It's not faith given of God. It's the wiles of the devil using the scripture to stumble. And I wonder what the relations thought when they heard the back door click quietly too and the preachers had vanished. Hmm? What do you think they thought? Well, that's a fine lot. Call themselves Christians. I mean, we can be caught out. And so we need to know what's of God and what isn't. How do I know it's the voice of God? And how can I recognize the voice of the devil? That's what I need to know in my heart and life. So I can understand which is which. I don't want to give you the idea that um, it's always that way. There's a a chap, uh, I cannot remember his name now, an African man, and uh, he was an evangelist, and he read in the Bible, it said, you'll raise the dead. So he walked down to the marketplace, and he found the first dead baby, picked it up in his arms, laid hands on it, and the baby came to life, gave it back to the mother, and said, there you are. End of funeral. And he had a tremendous ministry. He used to go on television, and um, the first thing he'd do was call someone out from the audience who was uh, got a deadly disease and pray for them in front of the camera and they'd be healed so there are both sides to it you know one had a calling from God one didn't and I believe in the real calling of God I've seen miracle after miracle and I expect to see him but I'm not a miracle worker I know it only works when God wants to work it I can't work it and I also know that God will do what he'll do But the wiles of the devil is to bring a young Christian and trap him into believing that he's got all the gifts and he's about to change the world. I remember when the charismatic move, to coin a phrase, started in 64, really, it got going. And I used to hear how this move is going to sweep the country and how all people are going to be swept in and God's going to revive it. And I went to a meeting where Michael Harper was leading it, and lo and behold, they had a communion service, if you would, uh, after being filled with the Spirit. They had a communion service, and they got to the bit where they'd pray for the Queen, a gracious lady, Queen Elizabeth II. And so off they went and prayed for her, and immediately, yabba you know, someone thinks they're speaking in tongues, and we get a prophecy, interpretation of the tongue, which says, Ah, the queen is going to be converted and filled with the Holy Ghost within a year. That was in 63. It didn't happen, but that was it. Then we got 
another prophecy about Prince Charles. And, I mean, it was all people in a high emotional state wanting to please everyone by a great word from God. And everyone was thrilled by it. I mean, at lunchtime, I sat down next to someone and he told me, wasn't it wonderful Prince Charles is going to get gloriously saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And I think that was within three years. It didn't happen. But everyone kind of got all elated and inflated by it. I, I remember I was one of the speakers, and so afterwards I, I told them that they ought to stop singing little choruses about lock the devil up in a little wooden box and realize that he'd got them locked in one. And um, I don't know, but they never invited me back after that. They <laughs> didn't want me as a speaker anymore. Um, but it was so obvious that they got caught up in their emotions. And sometimes you'll desire something. You want God to do something. And along comes the devil, and he knows what your heart's desire is, and it might be a good desire. But watch out that he doesn't feed you with what you want to hear instead of you waiting on God to hear what's necessary. Now, how do I know when it's of God and when it's of the devil? That's a question. It's often um, asked, well, one obvious way is what he says must never violate any scripture. God, when he speaks, will never violate scripture or scriptural biblical principle. But I must be careful to compare scripture with scripture. Secondly, the devil will always come as a blinding flash. If the devil wants to get you, he'll always come into your mind, bang, and give you a blinding flash revelation. Watch it. Because I've always found when God wants to minister truth, it's precept upon precept and line upon line. It's never a blinding flash. God doesn't give those. He builds truth into your life and into your being, line upon line and precept upon precept. Watch it when you get sudden, spontaneous flashes of revelation. Begin to check them out and say, hey, just a minute. Let's go back to the good book and let's see where this comes from. Because I know of one church that moved in mighty revival in the old days of Bradford. And one of the things that happened during the revival, prophecy began to come forth and they prophesied out a whole doctrine of the new covenant. And the doctrine that they prophesied out, they accepted without two or three prophets sitting by judging it. And so now, a generation later, there are lots of churches sprung up under that new covenant doctrine, but the authority of it was a prophecy given in revival time. Unfortunately, the prophecy was wrong. But people believed the prophecy and didn't examine the book, and now they read the book according to the prophecy. They take the Bible and they read it according to the prophetic word that came forth and try and get it to slot into the prophetic word. I must always take the book and if my prophetic word and um, the prophecy I've got or the revelation from God doesn't fit what God says, I throw it out. I say that's not God because there, in God there's no variableness nor shadow of turning. Everything is very clear and precise. Another thing with revelation from God, revelation from God's always very simple. 
If you um, uh, find it complex, then you know it's not God. I, I found a man who came over from India, bless him, Brother Joseph. He was a great blessing to my wife and I. But one thing I learned was to turn off when he started bringing out the man-child doctrine. And he brought out this man-child doctrine and he started discussing it. And by the time he'd gone on for 20 minutes, I just got an inner switch. I just turned it off. I thought, well, goodbye. Uh, It was going through the scriptures, taking a little bit here, a little bit there, going here, going there. It was that complicated to work out, and it was to do with the stars in heaven, and, uh, you know, the the scripture all begun in the manifestation of the sons of God in Romans 8, and on it went, you know, and we were going to have mighty men of God who were going to be revealed in the last times, and it was a complicated thing. It was the same as the division between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, and and it went on and on and on. And I thought, boy, if, if it's that complicated, you know, that's it. So I switched it off. But I enjoyed fellowship with him on a normal level. It was just the, on his cuckoo doctrines. I didn't want to know. They didn't add anything to me. But how often can a little Christian who's just beginning on the road get caught by someone who comes along with a doctrine that seems right? The devil never comes along with an obvious error. He comes along with something that's plausible. You can find it in the Bible. There are scriptures to prove it. And then he begins to build. And immediately what it does, it begins to unsettle you. Now, if something comes from God, and it's meant to be a greater revelation and a blessing, unless there's something really wrong with your life, it shouldn't unsettle you. And... It should bring peace, and the thing, revelation grows. All revelation from God begins to grow. If I get a real revelation from God, I find that within a week it's grown. And I've got more knowledge and more understanding of it. I find it everywhere I turn in Scripture. I find God shows me the greater and greater truth of it. Whereas when the devil comes... You get the kind of blinding flash. It's hung on about two or three scriptures. And you find that there are other scriptures that are questionable. And you have to start bending the scripture to kind of fit the doctrine. Well, you know, this doesn't quite mean that. It means something else. And then it will fit in. But it's in simplicity, the truth in Christ. And what we have to be aware of is the wiles of the devil. He knows that there's nothing more that an intellect likes than to have its ego inflated. So he works on our minds and he tells us these wonderful doctrines. And there's post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, and eschatology, and all that. And, And people write books on it. You could go out and you could buy 20 books on eschatology, the second coming of the Lord. And some people believe it's going to be pre-tribulation, some people post-tribulation. And they've spent years and years studying it. They haven't preached the gospel. But they've spent years and years studying some stupid idea, which we'll find out when he comes, won't we? I mean, it doesn't worry me whether he comes pre the tribulation or post the tribulation. My faith is that he'll come before the tribulation and be it according to your faith. If you want to stay around through the tribulation, you're entitled to. I don't want to be here. 
I'd sooner be in glory. So I just believe that. Not because of um, any great doctrinal understanding, because the scripture could be either way. You can argue it both ways. And I don't think anyone's right. He'd probably come in the middle. Who knows? And we only know in part and prophesy in part. And we haven't got full and perfect knowledge. I know the scriptures are there, but not everything's revealed. And so we need to give up getting doctrinally bogged down. There's people who believe that the gifts of the Spirit stopped with the first apostles. You know, that great doctrine of Moffat. And, um, I, I mean, you know, he, he actually wrote notes in a Bible, and you can get really confused using a Moffat Bible. It's guaranteed to confuse. And he had a certain doctrinal slant that he went down, very narrow and uh, very bigoted, really. And, and people get trapped into it. And you'll find they've all got their Moffat Bibles, and they don't read what the Bible said, they read what Moffat says. And it wasn't right. Terrible. So all these people, and it's like people who get their Thompson chain reference. They open up their Bible and they've got all these chain references. They are chains. No wonder he called it that. Real chain to chain you with. You can get chained up with his doctrines. Now what we have to do is just take the Bible, any good old Bible, and read it and just believe what it says and take it at face value. And that's all. It's all I do. I just take what it says. Now it says we've got to beware of the wiles of the devil. The first wile he's got is to explain the scripture some other way than what it actually says. If anyone can show me in the Bible, for instance, let's take one of the doctrines. How many people ever had an experience with the brethren? Who, who was any, any involved with brethren? Put up your hands. Brethren churches. Go on, you were, Carolyn. You were, Charlie. Well, you were, George, were you? Um, Okay, now, how many of you believed in this silly doctrine that the gifts of the spirits went out with the apostles? Yeah, that was good. Right? How many of you can tell me one scripture that they gave which validated that argument? There you are. Now, you see, their doctrine was one thing, but where was the biblical base for it? There wasn't one. And then you find there's another doctrine. Everyone must speak in tongues to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. Now, can anyone tell me in the Bible where it says that? But lots of people believe it as a doctrine and got hooked up on it, don't they? Uh, and they get hooked up on all sorts of things because the devil's crafty. Now, how many people I've met who have got a real experience of God and are terribly worried because they can't speak in tongues. Say, oh dear, you know, there was a man I knew who couldn't speak a word in tongues. God had gloriously filled him with the Holy Ghost. And he used to go around and pray for the sick and they'd be healed. And he came and he had a real gift of healing. But he was convinced by some nincompoop that he wasn't baptized in the Holy Ghost because he couldn't speak in tongues. But he was exercising the gift of healing. So I said, well, where did your gift of healing come from? And he said, well, 
um, uh, you know, well, it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. And I said, well, how can you have the gift without having the Spirit? Well, he said, um, I don't know. So I said, nor do I. If I was you, I'd just forget it. Of course I, I would that you all speak with tongues. I mean, don't get me wrong. Of course it's a wonderful gift of God and it's really essential that you speak in tongues. Why not? If Jesus Christ is the great lover of your soul and has given the gift of tongues, isn't it blasphemy to reject a gift from the one who loves you? Well, I don't say you have to, but you may if you want to. Anyone can speak in tongues. Just speak as you kind of speak in English. It's quite simple. Speak in tongues. Um, I've never found a problem. When God saved me, I started speaking in tongues. Two months later, I found it was in the Bible. I mean, you know, I, I, I got it experimentally first. But you see, the enemy is always wanting to twist doctrine and bring us into bondage by his wiles. Then he'll come to you and he'll say, okay, it, you know, if you're filled with the Holy Ghost, how come thousands aren't converted? Peter stood up at Pentecost and 3,000 were added to the church in one day. How come if God's filled you with the Holy Ghost, 3,000 aren't converted? Or he might give you a picture in your mind. After you've been filled with the Holy Ghost, you'll see yourself preaching to thousands. You know, the devil, he loves to inflate your ego. And you'll be convinced that it's God. I've, I've had women come to me, especially women, they, they fall for this. And they will come to me and say, oh, I, I'm called to the ministry. I had a vision from God. I saw myself preaching to thousands. And I think, oh, dear, oh, dear, another one. I've heard the tale so many times. But the devil, in his wiles, one of the ways I know when it's the devil's voice or devil's revelation and not God's is the devil will always inflate our egos and tell us how wonderful we're going to be. God, on the other hand, shows me my need of a savior, my need of cleansing, my need of deliverance, and my need of him. And he deflates the ego. He knows I have a big enough problem with my ego without inflating it. And he's in the deflation business. It's the devil who's in the inflation business. And that's the way it goes and operates. And you find that the enemy will come along quite craftily, very quickly after a person's born again or had a real experience of God, and suddenly they're going to be God's gift to the church. They're going to go out and do great things for God, and, and then he'll, he'll try and get them on a sidekick, like fasting. I know someone who fasted for 23 days till they went blind virtually. Uh, people who've done all sorts of things. Another man who decided he wanted the gift of healing so he'd fast for 40 days. So he did. He set himself to fast. And after 40 days, nothing happened. So he went downstairs to the landlady where he was staying. He was staying in digs. And he said, well, he said, I've fasted 40 days. He said, and nothing's happened. He said, so I've decided to break my fast. And that's it. He said, I've given up. And so the landlady, being a dear old landlady, said, well, would you like something to eat? And he said, yes, please. So she went out and she cooked him an omelette with four eggs. And she put some ham in it for good measure. And he had to be rushed to hospital. Um, poor guy, he nearly killed himself. 
uh, and he learned, you know. Uh, I remember another brother telling me, um, he said, well, he said, I fasted for five days. What did you learn? Well, I learned not to fast unless God tells me to. It took him five days of going hungry to learn that. Uh, but a useful lesson. Some people think they can blackmail or starve God into submission by fasting. You can't. God's sovereign. He'll do what he wants. If he wants you to fast, he'll tell you. If he doesn't want you to fast, he won't tell you. And that's the way it is. And I, I find with people that they, they are so complicated and young Christians get caught. And therefore Paul writes and he says, we've got to be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. I need the armor of God. I need the word of God. I need the revelation of God and I need the realization that there is a devil who's out to thwart my mind and to trip me up. One of the ways I know someone's going the wrong way is that they're not prepared to come to light. If you have a revelation from God and if God's really told you, it will stand the test of scrutiny by others. Won't it? So you can always go to someone who's more experienced in the things of God and share what God's told you. And if it's God, you needn't worry about the scrutiny of others, looking at it and discussing it and sharing it and showing you whether it's right or not from Scripture. I always worry about the person who's got the private revelation, who thinks God's told them, and then go on that course without sharing it. That's suicidal. Always open one's heart and bring things into the light. To stand against the wiles of the devil means to walk in light one with another. And it says in, if you just turn with me to 1 John and the first epistle of John, you'll find these words in the first, in the first chapter. And verse 4 says this, of the first chapter of 1 John, And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not of ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want you to look down in the verse where it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, one of the essential things is walking in the light, one with another, 
We have to walk in honesty and openness one with another. It shows that I'm walking in fellowship with him. If you're not walking in fellowship with him, you won't be walking in light. And you'll find if you're not in fellowship, you can't. Fear stops you walking in light and openness. It's always a sign of demonic activity or the devil's got a foothold in someone's life when they're not open and willing to share. That's a sign that there's something wrong. There's real darkness there when they're secretive. I always worry when I know a person wants to murmur behind closed doors, isn't prepared to let everything be in the light and the open, shows there's something working in them that's not of God. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. What we have to do is put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Learn that the vexation of soul that you receive purely comes because you don't walk in light. Let the light of God's word judge everything that comes to your heart and mind. Never believe anything that comes to your mind if it contradicts the word of God. Don't accept it. Don't give place to it. It says give no place to the devil. Don't ever accept anything that questions your fundamental experience of God, if so be you're truly born of God. Once you know you've been born of God, that's it. Often when uh, the devil would come to me with something, I say, but I know on such and such a day, at such and such a time, God met me. That's it. And that's the end of argument. I know God cleansed me, God delivered me, God forgave me. That's it. There's no argument after that. And I find that the lies just disappear from my heart and my mind. So, the scripture says, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Don't ever let your mind or your heart be vexed with questions, with vain disputes, with uh, disputations out of the Bible on, on questions which really are so questionable, not even the questioner knows the answer. Don't ever get trapped to argue with the devil because he's got a greater knowledge than you have. Don't try and argue about something. If it's in the Bible, that's it. If someone starts to try and reason it out with you, say, look, show me in the Bible where it contradicts that particular statement. If they can't show you that, then just ignore them. Because truth is truth and it'll stand. And always open your heart to share with others. If you have a real revelation from God, it'll stand the test of light. If it won't stand the test of light, it's not God. And walk in openness and fellowship. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The way to withstand the wiles of the devil is to walk in a church of love and of openness and of fellowship then you won't get trapped into the little deceptions he wants to sow in your mind. You'll find an easiness and an openness to share. May God teach us all how to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
And it's a standing which is a determination. I'm not going to accept it. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll give us the grace and the knowledge and the understanding by your Spirit, whereby we might stand against the wiles of the devil, where we might uphold your word, walk in your way, believe your truth. Teach us, Lord, to have teachable hearts, to hear your word. Teach us, O God, how to walk in your ways. Lord, and deliver us from presumption. Deliver us from the spirit that would take hold of words that aren't ours. But give us that heart which would humble itself before thee, would hear thy word and walk in thy way. Lord, teach us how to stand against the wiles of the devil, equipped with the armor of God. Lord, keep each one, bless each one, renew each one, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.